0: Well, good morning. One more time. Good morning. morning. That's a good morning. It's so nice to see you all this morning. Busy morning. Carl did a wonderful job letting us know how God used him and worked through his life in Lebanon. And uh, he also shared with me that if you have any questions after the service, feel free to ask him. Uh, I'm sure that he would love to talk to you further if you do. One of the things I do want to mention, and uh, Susan McKee brought this to my attention, today apparently is Bless Our Schools Sunday. I, I didn't know there was such a thing as that. I didn't know the government allowed us to bless our schools. I'm kidding, of course. But I think that one of the things we can do in our opening prayer before we prepare our hearts for the word is, is, is lift up our schools. And of course I'm speaking primarily about our public schools. I know many of you homeschool some of you have children in private school, Christian school, but some of you have your kids in public school, and you know how it is. Some schools are much better than others, and some are just, you can't even send your kids there. It's so bad. So what we want to do right now as we open our service and get our hearts prepared for the word is just lift up our schools. Lord, Heavenly Father, we do lift up the education in our nation. Lord, it, it, it's, been, it's been terrorized by the progressives. It's been turned into an indoctrination field for everything from LGBT to critical race theory to anti-American sentiment. But most of all, it's been used to promote ungodliness and indoctrinate children into turning their backs on you and not looking to you for all the answers, for you have them all. So what can we say? We, we recognize the state of education in our nation, but we now ask that you would somehow, Lord, bless these schools. Lord, Lord we know that, that school prayer disappeared in the 60s. We, we know that, that over the last few decades that our schools have become a breeding ground for all types of ungodliness. And yet, Lord, we are called to pray. So we certainly pray for our schools. We pray that you would bless them, bless all of our children who are in public school. Bless all of our children, Lord. And we ask now, as we prepare our hearts to receive your word, that you would once again speak to our hearts, encourage us, challenge us, if necessary, that we might fulfill your plan and your will for our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we find ourselves in chapter 13 of the book of Acts, and in chapter 13, the thing that happens here is we we enter what is the third and final section of the book of Acts. For Jesus told us in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that the Holy Spirit would come upon his disciples, that they would be witnesses in Jerusalem. And so we saw for the first few chapters, the disciples and the apostles became witnesses in Jerusalem. But then, as the persecution came in chapter 8, we, we saw them become witnesses, as Jesus said, in Judea and Samaria, which are the areas outside Jerusalem and Israel. And They did. Not necessarily by choice in many cases, but they did become witnesses. And we saw that and we went through that. And they made it as far as Antioch. But now we find ourselves in chapter 13, where we are now going to see that God, the Lord, called his disciples and apostles to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. To the ends of the earth. Well, What's nice about that is that includes us. That includes everywhere. There is nowhere not included in the ends of the earth, with the exception of where this thing started in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Anywhere and everywhere is included in Christ's mandate and command to bring the gospel and be witnesses to the ends of the earth. There is simply no place on earth that is not included. And I would go so far as to say the, the, the most important places that are included in the ends of the earth are those places where the gospel has not gone yet or is restricted in some way shape or form or there's persecution outright and open persecution of christianity and christians who practice christianity so i would say to you as we begin this next section of the book of acts that one of the things that's going to be clear and i can promise you is that the lord is going to challenge you to go to the ends of the earth Carl did a great job of sharing his heart, and I've been on many missions trips, and I can tell you, that's exactly how you feel, how Carl shared the reluctance and the the desire not to go is very human, it is very real, it is very normal, and yet when the Holy Spirit leads us to go, we go, amen? So that's what we're going to see. In these first few verses, and we're only going to look at just the beginning of this as we set the stage in the first three verses of chapter 13 for Paul's first missionary journey along with Barnabas, as we set the stage, what we're actually going to see is that this wasn't anyone's idea. This was God's leading and calling. And there are things that will lead you to follow God's calling in your life there are things that will open your heart to the idea of going to Lebanon or Central America or India. And we understand some of these places are restricted right now, and some of us are restricted from going. You know, I mean, it's, it's just, it's hard. I mean, I would love to travel right now, but it's very challenging to travel, and some places simply aren't open to us traveling there. So, Regardless of that, we need to have an attitude of going to the ends of the earth, and in order to have that attitude, there are certain things that must be in place in your life, or I can promise you, God won't even bother calling you. That sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? But why would God call you if your heart is not open? Why would God call you if you've already made up your mind that you're not going? I mean, he might call you, but you're close to hearing the voice of the Lord. I, it's interesting. Uh, people have often said to me, they've asked, actually asked me this question, how do I, 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 how do I know God is speaking to me? I don't know if I can hear the voice of the Lord. Does God speak to us today? And I would say definitively, God is constantly speaking to us today. Are we listening? The only question is, are you listening? So as we get into this section, I want to read the three verses, I want to go back over, and then I want to end with a challenge that I believe will help us to see that there is room for growth in each and every one of our lives. Even if you've been a part-time missionary, a full-time missionary, or are a full-time missionary today, there is room in our hearts to be submitted to God. So let's look at what we're going to study today. We read in chapter 13, verse 1. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. This is the beginning of missions in the church. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, wait a minute. There were missionaries who had gone to Caesarea and and Joppa and Lydda, and Peter had certainly traveled. Philip had. Saul had been in Damascus. Yes, it's true. And they even made it to Antioch, which was in Syria. But this is the beginning of a move in the church that will change the church forever. The focus now is no longer inward. It becomes outward, and it needs to remain outward, and for us as well. It is so easy, brothers and sisters, to sort of cling together and have a little enclave and, you know, stay within our own little circle. It is very easy. In fact, it's enjoyable. And yet, as we've seen, God is always calling us out, calling us forward. So Barnabas and Saul were called to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to do so among the Gentiles. Now the church at Antioch was led by a leadership team, and this leadership team included several prophets and teachers. And I want to talk about the individuals, but before we get there, let me let me explain, let me define for you that prophets or prophetesses are men or women who are inspired by God to speak his word through Revelation that is, what they're speaking is a revelation of God's will and his word. They're God's spokesmen. They reveal his will through his word. They share with us the things that God wants from us. Now, do we have prophets today? Yes, I believe we do. I do. When he, anytime that God speaks to a man or a woman, I believe that's the gift of prophecy. But in the early church, there were these prophets who had sort of an office and a title, the way that pastors and evangelists do today, or missionaries. They were called to speak God's word, and this was especially important because at this time the New Testament was being written. Much of it hadn't even been written yet. Most of it had not been written at all. Some of it had been put down, but most people didn't even know what God's will was, and so you had prophets, and much of what they shared was then recorded for us and is contained in the New Testament. But understand something, no prophet today or at any time would have ever contradicted the word of God. So there's nothing in the New Testament that contradicts the Old Testament. And there's nothing that a prophet could or should say today that would contradict either the Old or New Testament. So we know that if a prophet comes up and says, well, God didn't say that, and he did in his word, then that's a false prophet. We don't pay attention to that. We ignore that. We reject that. But then there were pastors or teachers. Now, let's make this clear. Pastor-teacher is sort of the same thing. There's a slight difference because all pastors really need to be teachers for the most part. But not all teachers are necessarily pastors. But there are pastor-teachers. And we see here the teachers are mentioned because they were inspired by God to teach and instruct people in his word. Now, at this time, the teachers were teaching the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. But they were teaching it through the revelation of the prophets and through Jesus' own teaching and the apostles who received their teaching from Jesus. So they would open up Isaiah, as we've seen before, or the prophet Joel, or Ezekiel, or Daniel, and they would teach the Word of God the way we study the Old Covenant today through the eyes of the New Covenant. And so we do that today. And they were doing that then. So that's what these teachers did. In order to have been a teacher, you had to know the Word of God. That wasn't necessarily true of a prophet, though I'm sure most of the prophets knew the Word of God. But it was definitely true for teachers. But I want to point out that when you're instructing someone in any discipline, or if you're instructing someone in the church or a Sunday school teacher... It is so important that you not just look at your role as a teacher, but also as a shepherd, as a pastor. There are parents who teach their children. There are parents that instruct their children. But I guarantee every single parent here today will tell you that that is only part of their responsibility. The greater part of their responsibility is shepherding their children, pastoring their household, both men and women, as they care for their children, as they instruct them. And I would say to you that of all the things that I do as a pastor teacher, teaching is by far the easiest thing that I do. Especially now, I've been doing this for 35 years. If all I had to do was teach, you know, some very high-profile pastors, that's all they do. They just teach. And I'm not judging them. I'm just saying their job must be really easy because they don't have to deal with the shepherding of people. They have other people to do that. And to be fair, as we get older, I'm not quite there yet, but as we get older, it becomes harder and more difficult to pastor at a very high level. So there may be some pastoring going on, but what tends to happen is pastors do a little bit more teaching in their senior years than pastoring. When you're younger, you tend to do a little bit more pastoring than teaching, and it's just because the job of pastoring or parenting or shepherding is incredibly challenging. Amen? It's hard, and, and when we look at what a pastor or a shepherd was called to do, we have to look at what a shepherd did with sheep, because that's the word that's used. The same word is used, and they used that word because it very accurately described the responsibilities of one who was shepherding the flock. Now. We know that shepherds or pastors, they do have the responsibility of supervision over at least a portion of the flock. So some of you are toddlers' teachers or preschool teachers, or some of you are working with Calvary kids on, on our Wednesday evenings, or some of you are involved in men's ministry or women's ministry. You are shepherding, you are pastoring, if you're in a leadership position in those ministries, you are doing the very same thing that every pastor does, shepherding people. Now, as shepherds, we watch for enemies. We watch for enemies trying to attack the sheep, and we defend them. Shepherds heal. They heal the wounded and the sick sheep, and they find or save lost or trapped sheep. So maybe your ministry, maybe your calling is to work in recovery, with people who are involved in different types of addictions or unhealthy, toxic behavior, then you are pastoring for you are rescuing the lost and trapped sheep. Amen? And maybe you do counseling and encouragement. And maybe you spend your time helping people to deal with grief. Or maybe you do hospice care. And I'll tell you, you are just as much of a pastor as anyone who does this type of work because you're healing the wounded and the sick sheep. So let's understand don't, don't think of me as the only one that can pastor or our assistant and associate pastors. You are called by God to shepherd the flock of God. All of you in some capacity. Now, maybe you have four or five kids. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're busy just shepherding them. Please do that job, because if you don't, someone else will have to. And I think what happens is many times other ministries get filled with people who weren't properly parented or shepherd when they were, shepherded when they were young. So do your job, because that's what you're called to do. So I, this is a message for everyone. That's the point I'm trying to make, and especially that each of us are called to pastor or shepherd in some way, shape, or form. What do we do? We love. We care for people. We share our lives with them. We earn their trust. This is quite simply the greatest, most important ministry we're called to, caring for others, loving others, as John says. We've been studying his epistles on Wednesday evenings. So that's the background. Now you can see that everyone is included in this. Maybe you're not a prophet, Maybe you don't pastor in a church, but each of us are at least speaking for God on some level, caring for others, and teaching those who need to be instructed. So let's look at the leadership team. I like to do this. Let's look at the leadership team. If they were a basketball team, they would have been the dream team. Barnabas, his name in Greek, well, that's a nickname, but his name means the son of encouragement the son of encouragement. He was a Levite. We've talked about him before. A Levite who lived on the island of Cyprus off the coast of Israel in the Mediterranean Sea. His real name was Joseph, but the apostles nicknamed him the son of encouragement. Gee, I wonder why. He had sold a field and gave the money to the apostles to provide for the needy. He was very caring, very giving. He had been sent by the apostles, we saw in chapter 11, to minister in Antioch in Syria, and he did so with apostolic authority. He was really the first leader in Antioch, the very first, or one of the very first leaders in that church. Now, he concluded when he went to Antioch that God had saved the Gentiles there as evidenced by God's grace in their lives. He was convinced, clearly convinced, that Gentiles did not need to become Jews in order to be saved. That was an important truth that transformed the early church. He was glad and encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. And so he's mentioned first, I think, because he was probably, more than likely, the senior leader. But there was a leadership team, and it included a couple of other people. Then we're introduced to Simeon. Now, he was called Niger. Niger. Now, it's interesting, we don't know anything about Simeon, except that his name is Simeon and his nickname was Niger. Why was his nickname Niger? Well, Joe Nigro will tell you that that word means dark or black. So I guess black lives really do matter. Of course they do. And we're going to see in the church that it's not just one color that God uses. And aren't you glad? He uses white people, black people, brown people, all people. Amen? And God is concerned not so much with the color of our skin as the attitude of our hearts. And I'm so grateful for that. You know, you talk about this stuff today. It's a really sensitive subject. And everybody gets nervous. Or some people, why did I come to this church? Listen, listen, I'm going to go there. Can I go there? Say amen. Listen, you may not know this about me, so I'm going to tell you. I come from an interracial family. Three members of my family are black. Obviously, they're adopted. Did you figure that out? (laughs) We have two members of the family who are special needs. They're they're not black. They're white. There's nine of us. Five biological, four adopted. I just tell you that so that if I say something that sounds a little racist, you need to know I also married a Hispanic. There is simply no room for racism in my heart. So if I speak to you differently than some white people, now you know why. Okay. This man, Niger, was called Niger because he was black. So he's probably from Africa, somewhere in Africa, and that's great. But the next guy that's mentioned is Lucius, and he's from Cyrene, and you know what Lucius means? White! So they got a black guy and a white guy on the same leadership team. What? Yeah! They were a diverse group. Lucius of Cyrene. Now this is interesting because Cyrene, well, this man, Lucius, must have been one of the disciples from Cyrene that we talked about in chapter 11, verse 20. He had preached uh, these those individuals from Cyrene, had preached the gospel to Greeks in Antioch. They they were like the ones that helped plant the church. And then Barnabas came in as the apostolic authority. But these are the individuals, I'm guessing, Simeon and Lucius, or Niger and Lucius, uh, they were the ones that actually planted the church, or at least among those who did. Now, Cyrene was a city in upper Libya, near modern-day Tripoli, in northern Africa. You know what's interesting? We tend to nickname people based on two things, who they are, what they look like, and whether they stand out among the people they're with. You agree with that statement, right? I mean, if everybody's happy and you're the grumpy one, you're getting the grumpy or grouchy nickname, cranky. They're going to call you cranky pants. So it's partially who you are and then partially who you're around. So I have to believe that Lucius must have spent some time with black people because they call them white. And i got to believe that Niger spent some time with white people because they called them black. Is that bad? I, I don't think so. I don't think they had a problem with racism in the early church. But they could acknowledge and accept one another for who they are, work together, and get past it. Why can't we get past it? Well, the media won't let us. Don't listen to that nonsense. We, we've gotten past this. Can I hear an amen? We're way past this. But... The media and the world wants you to think that we're at each other's throats. I look around, glad to see some shades here, color shades, from white to dark, and isn't it great? Isn't that wonderful? So I don't know how white this guy was, but that's what they called him. Now, they had heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God in Caesarea, and what did they do? They left where they were, and they came to this place because they wanted to be used by God. And we know from chapter 11, verse 21, that the Spirit empowered them And a great number of Gentiles put their faith in Jesus Christ. So let's say that Simeon and Lucius, these individuals, came there. The Spirit led them. They planted the church in Antioch. Barnabas was sent by the apostles. We know this to be true. He came in and led the church with the help of these two individuals. And there's three of the five. Then we're introduced to a man by the name of Menaean. And we're told, by the way, his name actually means comforter or leader, so I assume that that's probably some type of nickname as well. The church liked nicknames. Actually, that culture likes nicknames. And I can tell you, I'm Italian. We love nicknames. I won't even tell you what my nickname was growing up. Now you're all going to be like, oh, Mr. Tim, what was your nickname? I'm not going to tell you. A few select individuals know, and they're sworn to secrecy with a blood oath. The omerta, the mafia silence vow. So... I can tell you, you know, I got used to having a couple different names growing up. My grandmother called me one thing, this person called me another, my cousin called me something else, and that's just the way it was. Well, Manan was a leader, and he was the childhood friend or foster brother of Herod Antipas. What? Yeah, he was the foster brother. I mean, he grew up in the home of Herod. Now, this is Herod Antipas, who was the Tetrarch of Galilee during Jesus' ministry, the one that Jesus appeared before. This isn't King Herod Agrippa, who we talked about last week. It's a different Herod. There were a lot of them. But this is the one that Jesus called the fox. He said, Herod, that fox. You know, This is the guy who was in charge when Jesus was ministering in Israel. So, wow, yeah, so you got somebody on the inside, and then you're introduced to Saul. And Saul couldn't be any more outside at this point because, remember, he was a Pharisee and the Pharisees, they despised collaborators. They didn't like Roman collaborators. They didn't like Romans. Now, Saul's not like that anymore. But I want you to see that, that God was bringing together a very diverse group of people. They looked different. They were from different places. They had different thoughts, different beliefs. I don't know if this is true, but it's, it might, might have even been true that one of them was vaccinated and one of them wasn't. I'm being silly. The point is, there were different opinions. There were differences of thought and culture and background. And rather than being divided by those things, those very diverse things brought them together. In their common purposes, the Spirit led them to reach the world for Christ. I need an amen. Amen. So, Saul, I'm going to give you a, a, a robust recap of the life of Saul because some of you have been with us, some of you are visiting, and we're going to get into now, starting in this chapter, we're going to talk about Saul quite a bit. So I'm going to give you a review of what we know about Saul and so you can really understand this guy was pretty radical. I actually believe early on in his ministry, he got in a lot of trouble trouble because he didn't use enough tact and diplomacy. I actually believe that. I don't know if it's true. It seems to be true. And then later on, you'll see he goes to certain places after he's learned these hard lessons and he seems to get along a little bit better with people. I have a feeling this guy was a bit much early on. (laughs) I think it's fair to say that at least. So here's Paul who's at this time still called Saul, and you need to know that Saul means desire, but Paul means little. Guess what? We do know this, right? That shorter people are more spiritual? We know that? Right? Okay, well, that is a false prophecy. I'm just being silly. No, no, Paul was little. He wasn't big. He was kind of small. And so what do they call him? Shorty or little. He was Paul. But that nickname isn't mentioned here just yet. We'll get to that. In the, in the next section of, uh, of this chapter, in chapter 13, verse 9. But right now we still saw he was a Hebraic Jew. He was from a Grecian city, which meant he was sort of bicultural. He, he had both cultures uh, and experience in both cultures. He was from the Grecian city of Tarsus, brought up in Jerusalem, trained in Jerusalem, but from a Grecian city. He had been thoroughly trained in the law under Gamaliel, beginning at the age of 14, one of the greatest intellects of all time, He was incredibly well-educated and extremely bright. Have you ever noticed that people like that can be difficult to deal with sometimes? Well, he had witnessed the stoning of Stephen. He had heard every word that Stephen spoke. He still rejected Jesus as Messiah. He even approved of the crowd's decision to stone Stephen to death. He had become the defender of Judaism and the destroyer of the early church. He literally broke into Jewish homes and imprisoned those Jews that had become Christians. This is what we're talking about. He's a difficult person. At least he came from a very challenging background. And as a Pharisee, he was called to defend the truth, but he found himself determined to silence the truth. He even obtained letters from the high priest to arrest Christians in Damascus, we learned in chapter 9. He wanted to arrest Jews who had become disciples of Jesus. He wanted to bring them to Jerusalem, perhaps to imprison them or even put them to death. He was willing to uh, arrest anyone, men, women, who were disciples of Jesus. He wouldn't settle for anything less than destroying this perceived threat to Judaism. He also ambitiously desired, notice desired, his name means desire, he desired to gain a zealous and pious reputation for himself in Jerusalem. He was very political in that regard. He is what you might call an extreme conservative in this culture, whereas Manet and who he spoke about, not so much. So he was confronted by the Lord. We read about this and studied this in chapter 9. As he traveled to Damascus, he saw a light from heaven that flashed around him as he came near to the city. He heard a voice from heaven that asked, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He was blinded for three days and unable to eat or drink anything until the Lord healed him. He then began to preach in the synagogues of Damascus that Jesus is the Son of God, This man, you know, you got to give him credit. He was extreme, but whatever he believed, he was willing to go all in. So he stayed for many days preaching the gospel until the Jews decided to kill him. That was the only way they thought they could shut him up. But he escaped at night by being lowered over the city wall. And then he spent several years in Arabia and then later returned to Damascus. He then returned to Jerusalem three years after he was converted by the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is interesting. It's been three years since anyone's really dealt with Saul. And yet his reputation was so bad that he tried unsuccessfully to join the disciples at the church in Jerusalem. No one wanted him. They didn't trust him. They were all afraid of him because he had tried to destroy the church just a few years earlier. They refused, that is, these apostles, these men of God, men and women of God, refused to believe that he was a disciple given his past persecution of the church. They thought he was just pretending to be a disciple in order to destroy the church. So he got off to a real rough start. Would you agree? But because of Barnabas, he was introduced to the apostles who testified to the truth of his conversion. If it weren't for Barnabas, the son of encouragement, they would have never accepted Saul. And so after being introduced to the apostles because of Barnabas, Saul stayed with Peter. He also spent time with James, the Lord's brother. And so now they know he's the real deal. But of course, being Saul, he began to preach boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus in Jerusalem. Just what he did in Damascus. So what do you think? He spoke boldly to the worst group of people he could have, he debated with the Grecian Jews. These were the same guys that killed Stephen. So what do you think they did? They tried to kill Saul. So what does the church do? They're concerned. They don't want any trouble. They took him to Caesarea, which is where the port was, and they sent him off to his hometown of Tarsus in Cilicia. Bless you, Saul. Just leave, please. So it was a rough start for Saul. Now, Tarsus was a major commercial city in Cilicia, which is the area of modern-day Turkey. It's about hundred miles away from Antioch. And he spent several years in Tarsus until, guess who, Barnabas reconnected with him in about 42 AD. Saul was ministering in the province of Cilicia when his friend Barnabas found him. Barnabas brought him to the first Christian church, in Antioch to minister there. It was called the Christian church because Christ in Greek is Messiah or anointed one. This was a Greek church. They called them Christians. And they spent a whole year teaching great numbers of people in Antioch. And I would suggest to you that during that year, Saul learned a few things from his friend Barnabas. Would you agree? You know, when you minister with others, you learn from them. And Barnabas was a completely different type of person. He's the kind of guy that when he entered the room, he encouraged everybody. Saul, on the other hand, was the kind of guy that at the end of the conversation, you either loved him or you tried to kill him. That's just the way they were. So they made a good team, spent a whole year together, and then he and Barnabas were later chosen to deliver the gifts, the financial gifts, from the church in Antioch to Jerusalem that they might prepare For the famine. In fact, we saw this last week. They were uh, in Jerusalem during Herod's execution of James and his imprisonment of Peter. And then they returned to the church in Antioch after the death of Herod in 44 AD. So here we are in 44 AD, and God is about to do a mighty work to the ends of the earth. You've got these five very strong leaders, church planters, more than likely some prophets, definitely teachers the dream team, five of them, working together, great numbers of people, and then something changes, something happens. And this is what we want to close with. This is what we want to consider. Because we read it, or I'll read it again in verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, They placed their hands on them and sent them off. This was the first call of the Holy Spirit to full-time missions. And this is a wonderful moment, and I think it's apropos, given that Carl shared his missions update, that I really believe the Lord is challenging all of us, but certainly some of us, to consider going in the power of the Spirit to the ends of the earth. I've already told you the ends of the earth is anywhere where you can preach Christ at this point. It doesn't have to be China, which happens to be, you know, the opposite side of the globe. It doesn't have to be a jungle in Papua New Guinea. It doesn't have to be. It can be across the street. It can be at a back-to-school night. It can be anywhere in your life you have the opportunity to minister. Now, the Holy Spirit spoke to all the church leaders as they were doing what? As they were worshiping the Lord together and fasting. Why is that important? They were worshiping the Lord together and fasting. I think that's the key to why the Holy Spirit was able to speak to them, or more importantly, why they were able to hear his voice. They were worshiping the Lord and fasting. The Lord had called all five of these men to lead the church in Antioch as a leadership team, and they're all known by nicknames that describe their appearance and their character. They were men who were led by the Spirit and submitted to the Lord in worship. One of the things you'll see is people who don't like each other won't worship together. Think about it. If you don't like someone and you're sitting next to them, it's very hard to worship. In fact, I would say it's impossible. Why? Because John told us and taught us that you can't say you love God and hate your brother. You can't do it. In fact, the scriptures talk about this, Peter talks about this, Uh, to make sure you get along with your spouse, especially husbands, with your wives, because otherwise your prayers will be hindered. You know, you get into a fight. I know this never happens to anyone. You get into a fight going to church. Kids are screaming, you and your spouse are going at it, and then you pull into the church parking lot and you make nice. But then you sit down to worship and it just doesn't happen, does it? Until you turn to your spouse and say, honey, I'm sorry. And then all of a sudden, your prayers aren't hindered anymore. Your worship is free. Listen, if you have a hatred in your heart towards someone, whether it's a family member, a spouse, your children, or just someone that you know, a friend or coworker you're not going to be able to worship. So what I do know is that these five individuals actually loved each other, cared for each other, and they were able to worship together. I would say that's the greatest show of unity anyone can make, to worship together. Now, I'm going to go there again. You ready? Could this explain why there are so many segregated churches in our culture? Why is the church so segregated? I've got to believe it's because certain groups of people either don't trust or love other groups of people. It is the enemy, but people give their hearts over to it. So you have hatred in your heart and you're a person of color and you walk into a white church, you leave if you have hatred in your heart. Or vice versa. You're, you're, you're a lighter shade and you walk into a place that's Hispanic or, or Filipino and, and you don't fit in and you look around and you think, oh, i got to find another church. There's something wrong. Now, of course, if they're speaking a language you don't understand and they don't have translation, maybe I get why you might find another church to go to. But apart from that, please understand that if there's something that prevents you from worshiping with someone who's different than you, examine your heart. Now, I I know, I look around, this is not a problem here at Calvary Chapel. And so I'm preaching to the choir. But understand that if that's how you think, if that's how you feel, and you you just can't worship in that church, it might be you. You might need to change. Your heart might need to change. They did not have this problem. They were united. That's the first thing you have to do. You have to understand that if you're going to hear from God, you have to be united with your brothers and sisters. There's no room for division. The second thing, Notice they were submitted to the Lord in worship. They were submitted to the Lord. How do I know that? They were fasting. Ain't nobody going to fast unless you're submitted to the Lord. Can I be honest? I don't like fasting. I don't even know why they call it fasting. It should be like slowing. (laughs) Fasting. Who wants to do that? I do this once, once a week. I just share that so you know I don't like it. I just do it because it submits my heart to God. When I'm submitted to God, I hear from God. When I'm united with my brothers and sisters, I hear from God. So those are the two things I want you to take away, put them right in your Bible, whatever, take them in your bag, home with you. And remember, you need to be united with your brothers and sisters and you need to be submitted to God. Oh, that sounds familiar. Let me think if I can find a scripture that kind of supports that. Uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. These are the two great commandments. All the law and the prophets hang on them. Ooh, it's almost like Jesus taught that. You see, that's the fundamental problem when we don't hear from God. We're not submitted to God, and we're not loving our brother. We're not submitted to God, we're not loving our brother. So if you are submitted to God, fasting is a form of submission. We'll talk a little bit about that before we close. And worshiping, that's, that's, that's a form of union or communion or fellowship. So you're united, and you're submitted to God. They understood something about fasting, It's a necessary spiritual discipline for discerning the Lord's will. When you're fasting, you'll hear from God. You will. I can absolutely tell you, when I'm fasting, I hear from God. How does it work? I don't know. Why does it work? Because God said so. I I I take things on faith most of the time. Then I test them out, and guess what? They work, and I don't question them anymore. Did anyone get up this morning and question how your remote works on the TV? You press the button, it works. anybody say, how does this work? No, you just press the button. You do it a lot. Just fast. Now, let let me talk about what that means, because I think a lot of people are confused about fasting. Fasting is simply denying your flesh in order to feed your spirit. It's not dieting. Fasting and dieting are entirely different practices with entirely different objectives. The time and effort that you afford the flesh by eating, you replace by spiritual exercise. So if it takes you half an hour to fix your breakfast and 20 minutes to eat it, you take that time and you do something spiritual with it. That can be fasting. Your lunch hour. You don't eat one day a week. You take your lunch hour, you read your Bible. That can be fasting. You, you spend the time in prayer. That can be fasting. Now, the spiritual exercises include worship, prayer, study, reflection, meditation, self-examination, that is, looking in your own heart or allowing God to see your heart. Fasting also provides an opportunity to practice self-discipline and self-denial. Imagine that. Being disciplined and denying yourself. Listen, there are four basic types of fasting practiced within scripture. Absolute fasting, which is no food, no drink. I don't recommend you do this for longer than a day. Actually, you can't do it for longer than three days. You'll die. Then there's common fasting. This is a very good way to do things. Uh, No food, but of course, don't do it for too long. Some people have done this for as long as 40 days. They've lost a lot of weight, but, which isn't the end of the world. But you better be careful not to do this too much. I don't recommend doing common fasting longer than three days. But again, medically speaking, some people can do this for much longer. Then there's partial fasting. This is a really great form of fasting. It's abstaining from a specific food or drink, and it's not harmful at all, especially if you give up brownies or ice cream. It's actually quite beneficial supernatural fasting is something that I don't recommend you even think about unless God absolutely tells you to do it. It requires divine intervention. It's, it's not harmful because God's the one doing it, but Moses and Jesus, they fasted for 40 days. Absolutely. Like, no food, no water. I don't want anyone trying that, okay? So, unless, of course, God gives you a word, and then in that case, he better really give you a word because I do funerals, but it doesn't mean that I want to do yours. So the Lord now, through this time of submission and, and and being united in Christ, the Lord now called Barnabas and Saul to work to a work of God that require that they leave the church. Yes, sometimes people leave the church. You know, I've said this before, I'm in the business of emptying churches. I would love it if all of you go plant churches, start ministries. You know, then I can retire. I'm fine with that. No, God will send more people, and that's fine. Listen, we're about the kingdom of God, not about this one location of the kingdom of God. So it's okay if people leave for good reasons. You know, I, I would say that this call required Barnabas and Saul to leave a place they were probably pretty comfortable in. Now, how did the Spirit speak? It says the Spirit spoke. He must have spoken concerning Barnabas and Saul through one of the other three. I believe one of the other three was a prophet. God spoke through them, and that's how they received the word. And they're called away from their church fellowship and onto the mission field, as so many of you have been. And what did they do in verse 3? The leaders publicly confirmed through prayer and the laying of hands, the laying on of hands, that the Lord had chosen them. What did they do? They finished their time with worship prayer and fasting together, even after the Spirit spoke. And then they prayed for Barnabas and Saul and sent them on their first missionary journey. Now, one of the other things that's clear is that the church would have provided financially for their expenses before sending them off. So here's what I'm going to say, and I'm just going to close the service because we've had a busy morning. I really want, as we close in prayer, I really want you to consider how God is speaking to you. You have to determine that. But I've already shared with you the two things you need to do if you're going to hear from God. You need to worship the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You need to be united with your brothers. You need to be submitted to God, and you need to be loving others. That's it. If Jesus said all the law and the prophets, this whole book hangs on those two commandments, I'm not going to give you ten commandments, because even those ten are summed up in the two. Jesus said these are the two things. I'm going to make it real, real simple for you because Jesus made it real simple for us. If you had a guitar with two strings, these are your two strings. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you You've instructed us today. You've given us a vision of how to hear from you. And, and I don't know how you'll speak to everyone here. There may be some Barnabases and Sauls here who are going to go. And there may be some Manans and Simeons and others who, who aren't. They're going to stay. Regardless of that, may we be submitted to you. May we worship together as one family. May, may we not see our differences. Actually, may we celebrate our differences the way they did. Acknowledge that we're different and celebrate that some are lighter or darker or richer or poorer or come from blue collar or white collar, have different opinions. May we celebrate our differences and worship together because we're submitted to you. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.